Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. My guest today is the historian, activist, and chairperson of the US Civil Rights Commission, Professor Mary Frances Berry. And we'll be giving you a history and discussion of civil rights policy from the presidency of Nixon through to the present day. This is just going to be a single part episode. I can't get every one-of-a-kind authority we have on the show to sit down for us with, for a whole day, like Professor Orlando Patterson did, but I was really, really glad to get Professor Berry on the show to lend her really unique expertise to making sense of US civil rights in the past, but also how we approach activism, and as you'll hear from me, how we can deal with activist burnout and demotivation especially in the age of Trump. So I found this a really valuable conversation, and I hope you do too. As by way of bio, Professor Berry is one of the most visible activists in the cause for civil rights, gender equality, social justice in our nation. She served, as I mentioned, as the chairperson for the US Civil Rights Commission, which we'll get into in the interview, during four different presidential administrations, including... She was attempted to be fired by Reagan, but had that reversed by the courts. She's also the first woman to head a major research university, serving the University of Colorado at Boulder. In 2013, she was one of the recipients of the Nelson Mandela Award from the South African government for her role in organising the Free South Africa movement, which helped end apartheid. Professor Berry is the author of numerous works, including Power in Words, the story behind Barack Obama's speeches from the State House to the White House, $5 and a pork chop sandwich, vote buying and the corruption of democracy, and We Are, We Say, We Are, a black family's search for home across the Atlantic world. Berry is a fellow of the American Historians and the National Academy of Public Administration. In 2014, she was named a Distinguished Fellow of the American Society for Legal History, the highest honour the society can award. And since 1988, she's been the Geraldine R. Siegel Professor of American Social Thought, History and Africana Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. Her latest work... History Teaches Us to Resist, How Progressive Movements Have Succeeded in Challenging Times. She recounts many of the protests in which she was active and analyzes their organizing strategies and considers the lessons we can learn from them. It's a wonderful and also very accessible book, which I couldn't recommend more strongly. And that was the subject mainly of my discussion with Professor Berry today. So, as always, if you're interested in these sorts of conversations, please do like and subscribe. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, YouTube, RSS feed. And if you want to support the show, please do share it with your friends on your own social media. Forward it to anyone you think might be interested. And if you want to support us on a more monetary basis, you can sponsor us for a suggested donation of $2 an episode on Patreon. The links to all of those things, to follow us, to share, to subscribe, to support, are on our website, politicalphilosophypodcast.com, politicalphilosophypodcast.com. 
So please do check us out. For now, though, it is my absolute pleasure to bring you Professor Mary Frances Berry. Okay, so, um, I am joined today by Professor Mary Frances Berry. Professor, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me, Toby. So, um, I've been an admirer of yours for quite some time. I've watched a lot of your interviews. I've just finished reading your latest book, History Teaches Us to Resist. For those who aren't familiar with you, could you um, just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Well, since this is uh, political philosophy, I will tell you that I was an undergraduate philosophy major after being a chemistry major, did all that and then did philosophy. And I, my senior thesis was on Plato's Theotetus, the theory of knowledge. So, uh, and I've been very interested in political philosophy, but in any case, I have lots of interests. I'm a historian and a lawyer. And I teach history of American law. I also am very much interested in the history of African Americans and the history of women. And I do work on those things and advise students uh, on all of those uh, fields. Um, I have been, in addition to being a scholar, I think this is my 13th uh, book, and I have a whole raft of articles, which I won't list, (laughs) in various journals. Uh, over the years, um, I have been in public life as a government political official in the government, uh, starting with uh, the Nixon administration when I was a consultant to the Office for Civil Rights to teach them how to apply uh, civil rights measures to higher education. It wasn't very successful. Uh, then I was in the Carter administration where I was in charge of all the national education programs in the country. Um, and after that, and all this time, I continued to teach and to write articles and books and various things. And then after that, I was chancellor. I was a provost at the University of Maryland, College Park, and then I was chancellor at the University of Colorado at Boulder. Uh, President um, um, Carter appointed me to uh, education, and then he appointed me to the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights, where I was a member for a number of years while being a faculty member and a scholar. Uh, And then he made uh, Bill uh, Reagan uh, fired me, and then there's a story in the book about this. And then I was uh, appointed chair of the commission by Bill Clinton, and I remained chair of the commission until the second George W. Bush administration. And I have continued to teach at the University of Pennsylvania in the history department and since 2012 also in African-American studies. And I'm called professor of American social thought, the name of the chair that I hold. And when you say the commission, you're talking about uh, the U.S. Um, Civil time. Rights Commission. Yes. Right. Could you tell me? Um, what what that role entails and what like, that does? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the U.S. Commission, United States Commission on Civil Rights, 
was started by uh, Dwight Eisenhower, Republican president, at around the time of the Little Rock crisis and the Montgomery bus boycott and other uh, movements in the South. Um, And he did it mainly in response to complaints from African and Asian nations that were coming to independence about all the discrimination in the United States and the struggle for the hearts and minds of men between the Soviet Union and uh, the United States in these underdeveloped or newly emerging uh, nations uh, and the way their diplomats were treated when they came to the United States. Uh, So there was lots of discrimination in the United States, but he also was motivated by his secretary of state telling him how awful it was to get any traction with all these things happening. So the Civil Rights Commission is supposed to investigate Uh, civil rights abuses all over the country, and to uh, subpoena witnesses. It has subpoena power. Congress gave it subpoena power. Um, And it is supposed to write reports and announce its findings to the public and to Congress and to the president and to suggest remedies for the findings. And in its first years, all the way up through the 1960s, most of the civil rights laws that were passed were recommended by the uh, commission, unlike other commissions who have reports and then they just sit on the, uh, which have reports and they just sit on the shelf somewhere. (laughs) Uh, Most of the recommendations were actually uh, implemented um, over the years until we got to the uh, Reagan administration. So help me out with something here. Um, I was reading your book and it sounds like the idea of the commission is that it's independent. Right. Um, It's not party political or whatever, but you're also, or you were appointed and can be fired by the president, right? You you can't be fired by the president. The commission uh, was set up by Eisenhower and approved by Congress to be an independent agency in the federal government. For people who don't really understand the system, they don't understand why we have independent agencies. And there are some people, including the present administration uh, that don't believe we should have independent agencies or they don't seem to. But the idea is that even though the president plays a role in appointing people and the Congress plays a role in appointing uh, people, that you cannot be fired um, for expressing your views, Um, that you can resign if you wish, but you cannot be fired from the commission. And there are part-time appointments, and some people serve for years. And there have been, in the early years of the commission, distinguished people on it. Father Ted Hesburgh of Notre Dame was once a member and then the chair of the commission, and he got into a big fight with Eisenhower. The president can take your designation as chair away, but he's not supposed to fire you, although President Reagan did fire me, but the court uh, decided that he was wrong. Do you, um, final question on this, do you ever take it as a mark of, uh, a badge of honor to have been fired by Reagan? Oh, I think it was uh, wonderful (laughs) to be fired by him because he told uh, the press, a reporter told me that he told her an answer to a question, 
that he fired me because I served at his pleasure and I wasn't giving him very much pleasure. Uh, uh, and that was because I kept criticizing his uh, policies to turn back the clock on civil rights and going public and telling people, as I was supposed to do, but the court said, the federal district court here in D.C. said that you cannot fire a watchdog for biting and that by law we were a watchdog. Right. Um, um, I hope we get back to Reagan, because I do want to cover your book. Before oh. we do, I had, like, a personal question, and I don't want to make the interview about me, but it is notable that I'm interviewing you, who's just written this book, essentially, I took it as a call to arms to not give up on activism and to not give up on resisting in the age of Trump. I'm just approaching about a decade working in activism, which I know is quite short compared to your efforts. And I also know, like, my trials and tribulations will probably be um, of a much lesser scale than everything that, that you've been through. But there is this thing, and it's not just me, it's so common of, like, activist burnout, where after, you know, five, six, eight, ten, twenty years, whatever... You, it's not even about like the cause and depression about um, Trump or whatever. It's just like, how many nights do I want to come home to my wife, like tired and angry? You know what I mean? Like, like it, it's not just like I could earn more money doing something else, which I presumably could. It's also like, is this making me the most valuable husband or son that I can be? And I do, I don't know, just even in the last few days, I have felt like a, a, a wave of just exhaustion after, you know, I started working for HRC, Gay Lesbian Civil Rights in the time of the marriage equality debate. I've worked for Working Families Party, which is um, a sort of left-wing yes. political party in New York. Uh, I've done lots of, I've worked for just like a bunch of progressive Democrats across the country. And I've been with Amnesty International the past four years. And... I don't know, man. Like, I sometimes wonder if I could just get myself a cushy gig as, like, an investment banker and just donate money <laughs> to charity or something. Like, would I be doing more good in the world and, like, you know, not dying at 50 from stress, you know? So, like, you who are older and wiser than me in these things, I'm wondering if you have any advice for me and people who find ourselves in this position. Well, Toby, I think that the advice that I am about to give you can be summed up even by what I say in the book. What you have to do and what I learned over the years is that you have to focus your resistance. Uh, you have to focus your reform efforts. You can't be all over the place and you have to pick out. There's so many issues to work on because there's so many things that are wrong. But you have to pick out a sort of laser-like what it is you're going to work on and also what the goal is. If the goal is marriage equality, focus on that. If people want you to work on something else, say, no, I'm working on marriage equality. Uh, if the goal is to get Medicare for all, say, I'm working on Medicare for all. Whatever it is you happen to be working right now, everyone should be working on getting uh, the nomination of uh, Judge Kavanaugh defeated. Because no matter what issue you have in mind on the progressive side, 
it, your your policy changes can be uh, upset by the courts. That's one of the lessons we learned from the whole Reagan thing when we won a lot of victories and then he appointed some judges and they overturned them. <laughs> so uh, just focus. Like right now, I hear people, you know, they're working on all and marching about this and doing that and the other. You should be focused on trying to get do something about Kavanaugh. Now, if you focus laser-like and if you simplify what it is you're working for, your goal, um, and stick with it, then you won't be tired. It took us a year and a half to get the law passed, which uh, made sanctions against South Africa because of apartheid. A year and a half of marches and protests and getting arrested and boycotts and taking over buildings and doing everything. And we met every single day, the steering committee, we met every day during the week at my house uh, that whole time. And all of us had other jobs. <laughs> and then we would go out in the afternoon to a protest and our chapters in other cities would do the same thing. And we did that and worked with the Congress, our Congress people who helped us, uh, to get a bill passed, and Ronald Reagan was opposed to it and publicly said he was going to veto the bill even when we got it passed. And we were out there in all kinds of weather. Uh, when he was inaugurated the, the second time, it was so cold that they canceled the inaugural parade. But we were outside protesting and getting arrested with groups of people who came to get arrested. And so all we did that year was focus on that. Uh, and even after we passed it, he vetoed the bill, and then we had to go out again and get it passed over his veto, which we did do. So if we had been trying to work on, you know, five things or three things and not saying, here's what the issue, here's what we want to do, we would have been totally exhausted and probably wouldn't have been able to to function. So I think focus. Also, when you think of Think of resistance and protest as something that is gives you pleasure. Um, I often tell people that I'm never happier than when I'm with a like-minded group of people engaged in some kind of activity against injustice, and all of us are this, you know, we, we can be a little band of people. Fannie Lou Hamer uh, once said that, you know, if there are only three of us at the meeting when we call it, that's enough. At least we have three. <laughs> so I think that uh, I find joy and pleasure. It's a high. It's not like it's not a high like, you know, smoking marijuana or something, but it's a high when you uh, are able to work in a cause and you have people working in the cause and you've thought it out very carefully and planned it and you're organized and you know what the goal is and the goal is simple. I mean, certainly doing field work and being out in the streets. It can also like once you've been doing it for so long, it can just become what it is, which is just like work and like you've got to continually go back and try and find i mean the drug analogy isn't crazy right you've got to try and go back and find that original high again and again when it can just become like i say just work and just tiring you know what else toby what you do in a movement and what in the movements that i write about is what was done is to think of different strategies 
Don't keep doing the same thing over and over again. When you think about the AIDS crisis, for example, and the effort to get AZT at a price that people could afford when it was made available, and the effort to try to get Ronald Reagan to talk about the AIDS crisis, he wouldn't even mention it until Rock Hudson died, because Rock Hudson, the actor, was one of his friends, and then he mentioned it. But before that, you couldn't get him to say anything. Well, when ACT UP, started its guerrilla activities, they didn't do the same thing every single time they went out to do something. They would try different tactics. I remember the time they came to the commission meeting and in their outfits, costumes, and sat in the audience at the public meeting and then turned their backs on the commission which got great press. And they did that because we had two members who had said awful things about uh, the AIDS crisis and about gay people. Um, They uh, did things like going over to the White House and uh, either leaving something or having one person get arrested with some kind of funny thing that they had or going to an unlikely place when somebody was speaking and doing. I mean, they, they had they would try to think of different things to do. (laughs) So they kept media attention. If you don't have media attention, then you haven't done anything because nobody will know what you did. (laughs) And what you want to do is grow your movement. Uh, So that if they had just gone out every day and done exactly the same thing, I'm sure they would have been exhausted and bored and they wouldn't have gotten the attention. Yeah, that's so true. One final thought on this note is I think a lot of people, and I think you were probably addressing the book to them in some ways, have almost this moment when, you know, Trump gets elected or when uh, Gorsuch gets appointed or something like that, of just, like, wanting to give up of, like, what was the point? And it's understandable, I guess. What was the point of everything I've put in if this is where we ended up? I actually have gone the other way with Trump for whatever reason, and this is, you know, emotional, not rational. But, like, if there's one good thing I can say, you know, you really have to struggle here, of, of like, what Trump has affected me with, is it really has made me realise how much I love this stupid country, is, is watching him do so much to tarnish its image and make us look ridiculous in the eyes of the world and to damage so many of our institutions, has really made me realise that I, I do care. That the, 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 we, we, we resist this. I do care about what happens to this country. And I say this country separate from, you know, the government or anything like that. But, you know, the people, the institutions, the society that we have. Is it has, you know, a sort of soft, you know, Langston Hughes patriotism. I do care what happens to America as a country distinct from the state. And it has made me realise that I do have stake in the game and I'm you know happy to use the lingo of contemporary activists and say I'll check my privilege as a white man and I know other people are affected by it more than me but still it it has made me realize that to put it frankly I do give a shit what happens in this country and I've sort of I, I did at least for the first year of Trump take some motivation from it um I don't know I'd just like to get your response to that sort of interpretation of the presidency Well, one of the reasons why I wrote the book is because right after the election, I had some speaking engagements already scheduled. And one was I went to a state where there were women's uh, organizations, state agencies that deal with women's rights, were having a convention. 
and I was to give a keynote speech. And that was scheduled a long time before that. But at the time that I went, everybody there was thinking that Hillary Clinton was going to be elected. <laughs> and it was shortly after the election, so they were going to have a great celebration. And I was going to talk about that. Um, and when I got there, they said, well, first of all, could we have dinner with the heads of these various organizations? Could I have dinner and listen to what they had to say? And I went in. And they spent hours telling me how awful they felt and how they mourned. They were mourning. Um, and then uh, finally, and some of them cried, and they wanted me to answer everything they said about how they felt, you know, and sort of wallow, I thought, in this, you know, feeling of despair. Uh, and I'm not a despairing person. So the next... So, so sorry to interrupt you. It was exactly the same when I came into work that day. It was like a fucking funeral. And I just thought it was ridiculous. Honestly. Sorry, go ahead. People were mourning. Uh, so the next day when I got ready to speak, I said, you know, instead of mourning, mourning is fine. You can do that for a little while. But why don't you do what my mother always says, which is when you are concerned about something, get up off your do nothing stool and do something. <laughs> and that is what you ought to do is figure out what you're going to do. And that it, then I when I um, came back home, I got an email, several of them from my editor. And my editor said, you know what, you need to write a book about your experience with resistance based on research and your experience. Since you're a scholar, you've done the research and you've experienced it to tell people what you can do. Uh, about making change and how to organize and uh, not just the nuts and bolts of it, but a narrative about how these things happen. And so people can figure out better what lessons they can learn. So I decided, since I'm a historian, to say that history, while it doesn't teach us, you know, everything and, you know, we do, but I think we do learn something from history because human beings are the same no matter which time you live. And, you know, greed, there's greed, there's envy, jealousy, all the different things about the human condition. Um, so I thought about it. I didn't want to write the book because I figured I'd written too many books and I just finished last the year before writing another one. Um, but after talking to people and listening to people, I decided I would write it. So the purpose then was to show that there is something you can do. Now, people who um, organize, one of the things about Trump, it's not enough to just say, I don't like Trump or I hate Trump over and over and over again. Uh, it's tempting to do things like uh, going up to people who are Trump administration folks sitting in a restaurant and telling them off and telling them to leave. And I probably, if I walk in a restaurant and I see one, I might do the same thing. But I know that that's not really resistance because all that'll happen is somebody else will replace them. Like Pruitt left and now there's a guy, the number two guy who is worse than him. Um, or if Trump left, you'd have Pence, you know. So that's not really it. What it is, it's about policy. And so what I wanted to do was to write about how you change policy 
if the president is somebody who's unfriendly, but also to point out to people that sometimes you can have friendly presidents politically, you think they're politically friendly, but on the issues you're concerned about, they're not in favor of them. (laughs) And therefore you have to make them, which is why that historical chapter is in there about what happened with Franklin Roosevelt, who was considered a friendly president, but leverage had to be used against him to get him to do something. Uh, Bill Clinton was a, quote, friendly president. I called him an adaptable president. Uh, Hail fellow well met. But Bill Clinton had to be pushed. And Bill Clinton was terrible on gay issues and a lot of other things. So I think that the lesson is that you can resist. There are ways to do it, but you have to focus. And not all people who are in movements focus, and not all people who say hate Trump focus on an issue or some issues. If you're really interested about the environment or EPA, go down to the EPA and organize something to work with the civil servants there who are, in fact, disaffected and hate what's going on to get information and to interfere with the things that they're doing, not just, you know, hating Trump or, you know, Pruitt is gone, so what? Uh, Hating Betsy DeVos over at the Education Department. Have some kind of targeted protest against these things. It seems like the left is always looking for magic bullets, and it's like, oh, um, you, you know, we're going to find something about Trump and Russia that's going to take him down, or there's going to be an impeachment. And I've always just said it's probably, I mean, maybe, who knows, like, I don't put anything past Trump, but no, we're going to do have to do the hard work of defeating his policies through activism, and then the hard work of defeating his administration at the ballot box. There's no, there's no deus ex machina here, right? Like, and I think the left is always just assuming that there's going to be some get-out-of-jail-free card. And I don't... The the time for that is gone. The time for that would have been defeating him in the election, which, by the way, the left was terribly complacent in. Everyone assumed Hillary would win. Everyone spent their entire time bashing Hillary. And, you know, you just said about her husband, there is stuff to bash there, but... I, at the time, was pulling my hair out about that, yo, there is a greater evil here. I don't, I mean, I don't know how you felt during that election, but I felt two things. Everyone just said, oh, he'll never win. He'll never win. He'll never win. And I was like, he's three points away in the polls. He can win. What are you doing spending all of your time harping on about, oh, poor Bernie, this, that, and the other? No, there, there is a, there, there is the most overtly racist candidate maybe what since Nixon something like that running like just just get off your ass and do something and then when I do want to get to your book but like when it happened everyone like you say was just like at a funeral and it was like yo where were you this past six months I don't know how if you if you share any of those frustrations well I think that most people I know thought Hillary would win uh because she thought she would win. <laughs> and the atmosphere and the way the press treated it and the polls and all the rest of it, you know, you could go around thinking. And also because most people in the progressive community could not imagine that somebody like Trump could win <laughs> the presidency. I mean, it just the idea, they didn't know that much about him, but what they saw of him and knew of him, they couldn't imagine that he would, in fact, end up uh, winning the the presidency. So it was like people were shocked 
in a way. And I kept saying to people that you shouldn't make your plans based on Hillary's going to win. What happens if she loses? And no one wanted to really think about what would happen if she lost. So that's, you know, that that happens with uh, with people. And the other part of it is that uh, I can understand supporting Bernie Sanders. I think Bernie Sanders' platform was very appealing. In fact, it is very appealing. The ideas about social justice and all the rest of it. But I think the mistake that was made is the Clinton campaign didn't accommodate uh, Bernie enough Uh, and take seriously the fact that there was disaffection in the party and people who didn't want to go. Hillary really thought, I I believe, from everything I know, that she really thought that the fact that she was a woman and the fact that Trump was impossible to comprehend as president meant she was going to win. I have students who, uh, and former students, who were counting on the next job, like a lot of people, in the Clinton administration. I mean, they'd already lined up which job they were going to get. Uh, And it didn't happen, of course. And so we've got people walking around Washington now as consultants who expected to get something or other and still are trying to figure out what to do. But uh, I think the press, which is generally, um, obviously, under the First Amendment, something that we should protect and we should all uh, care about, that the press on this issue of Trump has not been as helpful as it could be, simply because it seems to flail about from one issue to the other that hopefully somehow is going to impeach him. (laughs) Uh, You know, it's one scandal after another, and this is going to happen, and he did this and that and the other, we're going to get rid of him. As I said before, even if we got rid of him, there would be Pence, who would be much more able to implement the things that Trump is trying to do because he is an old uh, political hand and knows better how to do things without losing, leaving tracks and how to create great controversy. So that doesn't mean that the policy would change. What we should focus on, as I write about in my book, is the policies and how do you go about changing them. The, the two uh, movements, well, actually three movements, that focus best on trying to make policy change that I write about in the book. One is Black Lives Matter, which focuses on an issue. I mean, you don't have to be concerned about what issue is it. They now have come up with an agenda that has lots of issues. But as they started out, they were focused on police abuse of unarmed uh, people, uh, which is an issue that is easily understood, even though it's difficult to, to resolve. There was earlier, the Americans with Disabilities Act was passed by a coalition of uh, movement people in that movement who had a wonderful strategy of focusing on what they wanted to do, how to do it, how to change tactics and and strategies, uh, and to do that. They did a wonderful job. Uh, so, And I think that the pro-choice marches that took place in the late 80s and the early 90s, leading up to the Pennsylvania versus Casey decision, Uh, were really well thought out. Marches usually don't change anything, and they especially don't if it's a one-off. You just have one march for this and one march for that. But they had a wave and a succession of huge marches uh, in Washington 
that I recall that Justice Scalia said in his opinion, I think it was in Casey, that they, the court didn't pay any attention to people marching outside their windows. And I said to my students, if they don't pay attention, how do they know they're marching outside their windows? <laughs> they obviously did pay attention. And it's clear that Justice O'Connor and Justice Kennedy at the time were influenced by the huge waves and succession of marches. Otherwise, just having a march doesn't really uh, solve anything. So, turning to your book then, um, you structure the book just going through um, a number of the different administrations. The one I've heard, let's start with Nixon, because the one I've heard most commonly compared to Trump is Nixon, in that you have a president who comes to power through some sort of weird collusion with a foreign power and then is forever trying to cover that up and eventually gets impeached, which seems to be what everyone's hoping will happen with Trump. And I must confess to having, you know, I I would like to see Trump impeached. I'm not sure it'll happen, (laughs) though. Um, But also, on the positive side, Nixon, of course, was a time of massive social movements in terms of civil rights, anti-war, feminism, stuff like that, where actually, in spite of one of the most venal and corrupt and just almost like cartoon villain presidents we've ever had a lot was accomplished there what are your one do you what do you make of the analogy between trump and nixon and two what lessons do you draw from that administration in terms of the efficacy of organizing and activism well i think that nixon had more political experience than Trump. That's the first thing. Uh, He was not, not, you know, an alien in a political (laughs) environment in the way that Trump is, uh, who doesn't even understand, you know, the language or anything else. Uh, And he also was a very, and he was egotistical like Trump. They both are very, you know, egotistical people. Uh, narcissistic and all the rest of it. Uh, Nixon had uh, two kind of sides. He uh, did some things in domestic policy that were not all bad, like he had a welfare reform proposal that wasn't too bad at the time. It didn't pass, but he had one. Um, He uh, let um, um, his Labor Department Uh, issue an affirmative action order for the construction industry called the Philadelphia Plan uh, that Art Fletcher, who was an assistant secretary over there, was responsible for a wonderful uh, black uh, guy. Uh, But then when the labor unions, the construction unions, um, said they weren't going to support Nixon anymore, then he uh, sort of abandoned it after he did that. So he made some forays in the domestic arena that seemed promising, but he was basically hypocritical. And basically, it's true that he was a crook. When he said, I'm not a crook, he he was a crook. Basically, what he did was, in order to get elected in 68, um, he monkey-wrenched the peace process. We in the anti-war movement had thought we had failed in ending the war. We got Johnson. Johnson resigned but then uh, peace didn't come, and the draft was still in place, and people were dying, not just Americans, but refugees and the like, and a great crisis. 
And so that's when the weathermen formed and went out and started engaging violent activities. They thought, too, we'd failed. I was depressed for years. I thought we had totally failed, and the war went on for more years, and people were dying, um, and all that work that everybody had tried so hard. But we found out that Nixon had, um, in fact, he calls monkey wrench the peace process, because he had sent his emissaries, H.R. Uh, Haldeman was one of the people involved in this, his staff guy, to get the North, tell the North Vietnamese not to come to the peace table that was all set up. There was a peace conference set up, and they were willing to come because of our military efforts and because of the anti-war uh, movement and because of the suffering they were experiencing. But he told them, I'll give you a better deal. Just wait. Don't come to the peace table now. And the reason why he did that was because he knew that the Dem Hubert Humphrey would win the election if, in fact, peace was made. The Democrats were able to make peace. And he didn't want to do that. So he was willing to perpetuate the war, have it go on, which it did for years and was even expanded and all those people killed and continued the draft for a while longer just so he could win the election. It was just an which, astoundingly wicked thing which, to do. Right, which is astounding and which is so awful that he would do that. And, uh, the and just to be clear, for people who aren't familiar with this, this isn't like a conspiracy theory or something. This is recorded American history that this happened. Right, and I did not know about it until I started researching this book because I had abandoned all interest in the Vietnam War movement after we failed, and I just went away and I was writing about other stuff, and I just considered it one of those great failures that we didn't stop the war. And then when I started researching it, I found the research was published, and there are articles in newspapers, you can, you can search it, about how uh, all the information came out there are archival materials and documents which show that this, in fact, he ordered him to monkey wrench the peace process, and he did, and that this was all done to keep the Democrats from making peace. And he, in fact, then won the election. The war went on, what, 73, 74, and then he uh, was able to end the draft, and then, you know, he claimed that he succeeded in ending the war. <laughs> so you can't imagine, but the impeachment of Nixon came about, of course, different from our talk about impeaching um, Trump, because he, in fact, obstructed justice in a criminal case that was in the courts here, the Watergate, the burglary, and all those other events surrounding it, which involved crimes. And there was information. And there were then the Butterfield, Alexander Butterfield, and testifying before Congress, who worked at the White House, uh, pointed out that there were tapes <laughs> uh, in which, because presidents had taped, other, other presidents had done this before, had taped things in the White House, but we didn't know about it at the time. Uh, but so we got interfering with a criminal case in the court by suppressing uh, information and going out and upsetting it and obstructing justice clearly, which is what he did. I myself, on the night when he fired those uh, prosecutors over at um, the Justice Department, um, who were um, special prosecutors, uh, went with my friend Joe down to Lafayette Park. Nobody much was around. And we started yelling, resign, resign, resign. And pretty soon a whole crowd <laughs> gathered outside the White House yelling for him to resign. It took some time, but he did. 
Yeah. Um, I don't know if you've ever delved into the Nixon tapes. At one point, I got interested in them and just started listening to random chunks of them. The other thing you get was just what a colossal racist the guy was. Like, there's just endless reams where he's going on about, like the Jews and homosexuals and stuff. Right. It's just right. what an awful human... Anyway, that that's an aside. He was a bigot. He was, like, but a comedy bigot. There's, like, big, long sections of him, and I'm just quoting the language he used, talking about how, like, the Negroes are animals and they live like animals, right. and it's right. just... And you, you have to sort of slap yourself that, like, people actually talk like that, and the, the fucking president did, you know? Absolutely. Um, anyway, that, that's a bit of an aside, but I do recommend for students of political history, just go and just pick a random section and just listen to the tapes. Like, they're, 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 they're fascinatingly awful. Okay, so, to sum up with the Nixon years, in your book, you said you were often asked how Bill Clinton was doing at the time, and you would often say, eh, if he was a student, I'd give him, like, a C, a C+. Plus. What letter grade do we give Nixon? Is oh, he an F? An F. F. Um, Carter. Carter's the next one, right? What do we give Carter? Uh, Jimmy Carter was a reconstructed Southern racist. He described himself sort of in those terms. That I remember one day in the White House when I was in the administration, we were having a meeting about something in the cabinet room. And uh, it was about unemployment, which was high at the time. And uh, his Labor Department and Council of Economic Advisors folks so were talking about a program to pay to have unemployed workers work, uh, uh, have the employer paid some money to hire people who are unemployed and then pay them and trying to expand such programs. And he said, oh, when I was running my peanut factory and uh, if you had offered me that money, I would have taken it. But in those days, given how I was, I would have just taken the money and then I'd have the black workers come, and then I would just send them out to buy Cokes or something and not have them hanging around. <laughs> but he changed from that. What he was describing was that he wouldn't do that anymore, that earlier when he was younger, he might have done something like that, and that he thought other people who were racist would do that about black people. I found him to be very poignant in discussing human rights issues. And he was uh, the most recent president to make human rights an objective in the State Department and appointed an assistant secretary for human rights and said that in everything he did, he was going to do that. But I think he was a little bit out of his depth uh, running the presidency uh, because he didn't know how to smooth. He didn't know how to really talk. But on race, he was uh, pretty good. I remember a speech that he made to young black, uh, young students, some of whom were black, who come to the White House every year, uh, high school students. Um, and what he, he was talking to them very honestly about discrimination in the country against women, against people of color and so on. So I think that Jimmy Carter, who has been a better ex-president in terms of managing the presidency, <laughs> than he was as president, was disserved to by loyalty. He had a lot of people working for him 
uh, who didn't know what they were doing. Uh, in that way, it reminds me sort of of uh, other administrations, uh, or who were careless uh, with keeping up with things. But I think on civil rights matters, I would give him a B, B plus. Yeah, I was just going to say, so we're giving, yeah, B, like, very well-intentioned, um, not always the most effective, but took it seriously in a way right. few other presidents have. But let's move forward. We did Nixon, Carter, Reagan, the man who tried to get you fired. Um, how, I mean, I know the answer is probably not going to be overwhelmingly positive, but how was this presidency vis-a-vis um, civil rights? Uh, an F. An F? Yeah, he tried to turn back the clock on civil rights. I mean, do you, is Reagan a moment similar to Trump where you, I forget who coined the term, but a white lash of white people voting their frustration at what they see as undesirable, what I would call social progress, but a sort of back, in, the same, in a similar way to Trump was a, in, can be interpreted as a backlash to a black president. Was Reagan in some ways a, a backlash to um, the civil rights and the anti-war movement and all of that? Well, I think that's probably right. But he had a personality uh, that was engaging. I find him find him to be a very warm and engaging person. Uh, and he also talked uh, in simple terms. He doesn't garble as many things as Trump does, <laughs> but Trump talks in simple terms, too, that ordinary people can understand, even if elites don't understand what he's talking about. It takes us about three days to figure out what he said. Uh, but uh, but his personality, Reagan's sunny disposition and his personality and his able, he was in a sense like Obama, who used words, the power of words. I wrote a book. Josh Gottheimer called Power in Words, about the use of words. Um, and he knew how to use them and his personality. And many people don't remember anything about him except that he has an airport named after him and a building in every state. And they think he probably was a great president. And he said, tear down the wall and, you know, and People don't even remember that he met privately with Gorbachev and all this talk today about people meeting privately with people. He had three meetings with him. The first was private, which persuaded Gorbachev to move to collapse the Soviet Union. But in any case, uh, but on civil rights, whether he was doing it when he was governor of California, he was not so bad. But when he became president, uh, catering to his base, which is what Trump does, uh, and then he put all those judges on and ended up uh, trying to turn back the clock on civil rights, yes. He was an ex-Democrat, wasn't he? And then he was one of these people who... Um, I always got the impression with Reagan that he... Well, not that I was around then, but the, the, he just seemed to lack any ideological conviction whatsoever. Like, he was just going with what would get him votes, which turned out to be not super productive for civil rights or anything like that. Well, I think he knew what he was doing. There's his handwritten note on the letter saying that the IRS should do what Bob Jones College, which discriminated against blacks, uh, wanted, which was to continue to give them a tax exemption as a nonprofit under the IRS law without changing their discrimination policy. And in fact, his letter actually signing onto the request and telling the government to do that 
is extant. So Reagan was not somebody who didn't know what he was doing. I think he was catering to his base. I don't know what he thought uh, inside. I don't really care. And I can't find out. But I know that his Justice Department refused to enforce the civil rights laws. And in fact, a number of career attorneys quit their jobs and left because they refused to stay there when they were told that they couldn't uh, enforce the laws and the litigation there, whenever they would win a court case uh, undermining something on civil rights, the assistant attorney general for civil rights, a guy named Brad Reynolds, I remember one time he announced this was a slam dunk for the administration. Isn't this great? So it was a terrible time, actually. Yeah. He also actively and vocally campaigned against school integration, right? He would go around saying there was this policy of let, let's, you know, bus in students from poorer black areas, make sure there's like some representation is not just racially homogenous in particularly southern states. And he would go around saying this is, you know, states' rights and all of that, and this is absolutely something terrible, um, which seems just like a horrible position to me today. Well, but. he did that, but he started his campaign in Mississippi, in the place where the three civil rights workers, Shady, Swerner, and Goodman, were murdered uh, during the civil rights movement and announced uh, his campaign there deliberately <laughs> so as to show which side he was on. Yeah. Moving forward in the historical narrative, if there's one Republican president that seems to get a pass from liberals, it's H.W. Bush. Um, how do you grade him? Was Did this get any better or, um, or no? Well, I think that George H. Uh, Herbert Walker Bush was uh, a good preppy. You know, we, I call him that, a good preppy. He's the kind of kid who goes to prep school and learns all the good, right things and is polite and all the rest of it. Um, and I don't think he meant to do anything um, evil, uh, had no uh, intentions of doing anything. And some of the people he appointed were moderate folk who didn't have any particular animosity towards civil rights. Um, some of the things he did and said didn't make any sense, uh, as when the Rodney King riots occurred and the white uh, officers were acquitted, he um, said, well, why don't we, you know, prosecute them again? Not understanding you can't prosecute people <laughs> <laughs> after they were acquitted. Uh, but I think that in overall terms, I would probably give him a B. Really? Yes. He supported the Americans with Disabilities Act. If you looked at, which is one of the most important civil rights laws that's ever been passed. It has weaknesses, and now the administration is trying to change it to weaken it further. But it was an amazing um, um, thing to get that passed. Uh, he appointed Clarence Thomas, which is the block. So I think maybe I won't give him B. I'll give him a C plus because he uh, made a speech uh, when he announced Clarence Thomas saying he would looked all over America and this was the best guy he could find, which was an absolute lie. Hmm. <laughs> I mean, we could do a whole podcast on Clarence Thomas. Absolutely. I find him a really interesting figure. Um, but I was going to ask if he gets a B or you downgraded it to a C plus, are we rating... Uh, the first Bush higher than Clinton then? Because that, that could be an interesting opinion. Clinton, you have to keep in mind that he perpetuated the black predator uh, uh, trope 
which mm. is part of the whole mass incarceration which has taken place in this country that Michelle Alexander writes about in the New Jim Crow and other people have written about uh, that in fact has all these black and Latino people in prison for minor drug offenses and other kind of stuff uh, and destroys family. Talk about family separation. Mass incarceration is family separation. Uh, and Clinton did that politically to show he wasn't soft on crime and perpetuated that thing which had been started earlier um, and um, uh, he refused to issue a uh, stern uh, edict against racial profiling when there were lots of people getting arrested on the streets and other places for doing nothing, which still happens, of course. We still have black people arrested for doing nothing except, you know, standing while black or being a firefighter while black or drinking a cup of coffee while black or not drinking a cup of coffee while black, but a racial profiling and I and others tried to get him to issue a strong edict against it. But that super predator thing was one of the worst. Yeah, although she did apologize for that a number of times afterwards. But, you know, um, but so, so that all sounds like we're looking at another F, but your ultimate verdict on Clinton was like a C. So is there a positive side? That- no, I'd give him, a, I'd, I said I would give him a C or C plus. He appointed a lot of black people who were good to jobs in the government. It doesn't matter if they were black, they were good. And a lot of women to um, uh, jobs in the administration and some gay people and had the first gay ambassador, Jim Hormel. Um, And he had some policies that made sense. His ending welfare as we know it, like his crime, uh, super predator thing, were all done to show that he was a new Democrat and he could be just as conservative as the language went in those days, as Republicans. Uh, to, so you could argue that in NAFTA, uh, while everybody in the administration worked hard to get it, uh, everybody knew that NAFTA was going to have a deleterious effect on American manufacturing and jobs of ordinary people who are not super computer whizzes who can go work in Silicon Valley or someplace and make a lot of money. Uh, but he wanted it. So he got it. He followed the lead of Robert Rubin on all of his economic policies and his economic policies. While he was in office, the economy was good. But what it did was lay the groundwork for later on a lot of problems, some of which have led eventually to somebody like Trump getting elected with a disaffection across large sectors of working class America. I mean, on the economy front, though, just to play devil's advocate, and I completely agree with you about crime and prisons and the prison industrial complex, and in fact, the podcast I'm going to be releasing this week, I stake out something close to a prison abolitionist position. But with that said, you can imagine someone who's more centrist than I am, saying something to the effect of, but just look at the economy. Look at what happened in the 90s. And you might debate how much that was Clinton versus stuff that was just going to happen anyway. But the average income of most Americans skyrocketed. I think the average income of black Americans went from something like $28,000 a year to like $38,000 a year. Like it was a huge jump. Um, crime, we've talked about prisons, but fell dramatically. The number of black Americans in, like, middle-class jobs absolutely skyrocketed during that period. 
And th- th- there is a case that, that, that someone who's perhaps more centrist than us could look at us and go, yeah, you can complain about the neoliberalism and people dislocated, but it worked, didn't it? Like, like the, the, that was the last big time that working America got a raise. Oh, sure. It worked for lots of people. That was the point. In the short term, it worked for a lot of people didn't work for everybody. It didn't work for the people who were no longer getting uh, welfare support, who had latchkey kids at home with nobody taking care of them while they went out miles away to work uh, cleaning hotels and motels and stuff and being shipped back and forth and so on. It didn't work for them. But it worked for lots of people. Uh, and it worked for all those people he appointed. It worked, you know, you could say he appointed me chair of the Civil Rights Commission. You could say it worked for me, in a sense, even though I was a professor and that was part-time, so it wasn't my job. But um, the, the point I was making is that it was a short-term solution. The overall effect of NAFTA, which is what I was talking about, and the mass incarceration leaves us with what we have today. I mean, going into the recession that took place and today with mass incarceration, which has been perpetuated and all the prisons and all the rest, which, you know, and you say you're going to talk about the prison industrial complex. Um, And so it was short sighted thinking uh, at the time, because while all that was going on, no one was trying to figure out what are we going to do in the long term? You know, what? policies will we take? But I heard Clinton say the other day that NAFTA does need to be changed, that it, whatever benefits it had have all run out and that it needs to be changed because it was not something that was to be in effect for all time. It was just a short-term solution. He's also done a 180 on the prison stuff. And yeah, just to clarify my own position, I think the single in terms of domestic policy, the single greatest moral evil is in, in the United States currently is our prison system. And that's like, if there's one thing I could change about America, it would be that. Um, so do you buy the narrative? I have a lot of um, friends who call themselves like Bernie or Bust in, in terms of like they, they just refused to vote for Hillary, which I thought was kind of stupid, honestly. Um, But they sort of say that Hillary's loss and the rise of Trump was sort of the chickens coming home to roost. Like, that was like the ultimate atonement for the sins of her husband in terms of these sort of, you you know, dissatisfaction that was the the long-run effects that you're outlining. Um, Do you buy that narrative? No. Um, I think that, as I said, I would give Bill Clinton about a C plus. I'd give him about the same as I give George Herbert Walker uh, Bush. And I like Bill Clinton. I've always liked him a lot. And I knew him slightly before he was president. And I think he overall meant well. But he thought the Democratic Party needed to be picked up so it could get back in office and that there were certain things that needed to be done to make the party credible to a great swath of voters And in the short run, it did do the things you've said about the deficits. You didn't mention that, uh, getting rid of the budget deficit and all the rest of it that happened during his. So some good things happened. And he appointed lots and lots of black folk to jobs so that later on they could be in the Obama administration because they had experience from the earlier time and they could go out and get good jobs in the private sector. But it, the, the no one plan, that's one of the things that happens in this country. No one plans what's going to happen when the short term 
uh, solution has run out of steam. <laughs> you know, then what's going to happen to people? And then what happened to people was you end up with a whole bunch of disaffected folks. And that happened with the Obama period and his the steps he took to alleviate the recession, which was the, it was the, the enormous recession that was uh, afoot when he came in office. But those steps still didn't reach into enough places in the country. So you left a whole lot of disaffected people again. <laughs> OK, and some of them were the same people who were disaffected after NAFTA ran out of steam. You know, and manufacturing left their community and all the rest of it. And so you leave a bunch of Trump voters <laughs> in these places, <laughs> which, in fact, if you had thought of what are we going to do about all these people? I used to say when we were in the Carter administration and we talked about employment, which was sky high at one point, that black unemployment was really uh, sky high at one point. Why don't we train people? We keep talking about training. Why don't we match training with an actual job? And training that sends you once you're trained into a job because we kept training people and then the people wouldn't have a job, <laughs> which wasn't fooling anybody. OK, and was not satisfying at all. We could pay them while they were being trained. But then what? And so the Obama administration uh, did a great job at uh, alleviating the crisis. But the what we got was a bunch of people left and no attention paid to them. So what we need in the country is more long-term or medium-term policy thinking rather than long-term. And you left out George W. Bush. And George W. Bush, uh, in fact, was um, um, reprehensible in terms of getting Colin Powell to front for him and tell that lie. <laughs> yes. Well, what's our what's our grade? What's our grade for W? Beg your pardon. What 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 letter grade are we giving to George? And I believe he stole the election in Florida. We did a big research report at the Civil Rights Commission on that. So I probably would give him a C minus. What what's getting it to a C though? I thought you were going to say like a D or an F. What? You mean why don't I give him an F? I don't give him an F because I gave an F to Nixon. Right. Oh, we're just trying to like maintain some distance from Nixon. Right. He's not. He's not. He wasn't impeached, and he didn't interfere with the, as far as we know, <laughs> into uh, uh, a criminal case uh, that we know about. But um, he made some awful uh, judge appointees, um, and his policies at the Justice Department and the war, the war in the main. Um, what he did also after 9-11, I think that he did uh, make some efforts which were appreciated by people to try to pull the country together. Hold. But going into the war in Afghanistan, when Osama bin Laden wasn't even in Afghanistan, where we still are, was a big mistake. Yeah, it's I mean, never, the uh, point is so often made that you never thought you'd look back and miss George W. Bush. But my God, imagine... And for all the mistakes that were made after 11, imagine if that happened today, you know, because there was an Islamophobic racist backlash to that. Um, at least the president didn't buy into that. Imagine if something like nine, this is what keeps me up at night. Imagine what happens to civil rights if a 9-11 happens under Trump, you know? Well, even without a 9-11 happen, but also I changed my grade on Bush to a D, a D minus, because I don't want to give him the same as Nixon because of Katrina and what happened in New Orleans. 
and all those people who died. And now when we talk about Puerto Rico and what happened there, which is terrible, but people forget what Bush did and didn't do <laughs> about all those people who were drowning down there in Louisiana. And we all saw it around TVs. They absolutely died before our eyes. Let, let's wrap up then. George, so George W. gets, um, he gets a D just to give a bit of room for Nixon to get the F. Um, <laughs> Obama, where are we? I, I feel like I'm at like a B plus for Obama. What's yours? Well, I think the power in words, uh, even if he didn't do anything else, um, and as an intellectual and one of the, quote, elites, unquote, uh, I naturally have an affinity for people who have style and grace and intellect, no matter what the policies, although black unemployment was uh, uh, higher all during his first term than it had been since way back when, before Carter, when we had all that inflation. And it stayed that way all his first term. And he didn't do anything about it until his second term in his two years. And he also told lies. He said he was going to draw a red line in Syria. And if they had uh, chemical weapons, he was going to stop them. And he didn't. He changed his mind. But maybe changing his mind was a good thing and not a bad thing. So I think in overall terms, he probably should get a B, B plus. Right. And then just finally, provisional grade for Trump. Are we in Bush territory or Nixon territory? Are we, are I'm, we... not, I'm not going to grade Trump until after he finishes his term, if he finishes it. <laughs> do, you, do you think there's some chance that he won't? I mean, maybe Mueller comes back with I don't think Mueller will find that he obstructed justice in the way that Nixon did uh, to make it a sort of slam dunk case against him. But uh, I don't know. I keep thinking that maybe he will resign uh, because he's bored with it. I don't think he likes being president. He doesn't seem to. He seems irritated all the time. Uh, uh, Or he'll just decide not to run again and announce that, and that would be the end of it. So I think that that's more likely and uh, something that might happen. Yeah, I mean, if you believe some of the latest reporting, he was absolutely shocked and stunned to have won. Like, he didn't believe it when it happened, apparently. Right. That's what some of the inside reporting has said, but that feels credible to me. Yeah. Um, okay, anyway, you've been very generous with your time. Um, do you want to tell our listeners if they want to get your book or follow you, where should they go? You're on, you're on Twitter, right? Yes, I'm on Twitter, and uh, if they want to get my book, it's called History Teaches Us to Resist. Uh, on Twitter, I'm at Dr. M. F. Barry, and uh, the book is History Teaches Us to Resist, How Progressives' um, Movements Have Made Change in uh, Challenging Times succeeded in challenging times. And they can get the book either from Beacon Press or from Amazon or wherever. Well, you, it's available in bookstores. At fine booksellers, at fine booksellers everywhere, as they yes, used to say. Yes, at fine booksellers everywhere. <laughs> yeah. um, well, listen, thank you so much for coming on. I've seen a whole load of interviews with you, and I've um, read, read your stuff, so it, it's great to have got you on the podcast. Um, are there any final words for um, tired and disaffected activists like <laughs> myself you want to leave us with? 
Yes, just keep on struggling, but stay focused. Focus on one thing at a time and don't let every little wave that happens every day. Try not reading the paper for like or watching the news or going on social media to find out what the news is for two or three days while you focus on the one thing you want to work on. Just stay focused and be persistent. You know what? That's such good advice. Do you want to know something absolutely terrible about me? Um, Don't answer that question. But like, I can't think of the last time I went three days without checking the news or checking social media. It's got to be years. That's so bad. That cannot be psychologically healthy, especially as every time I pull it up, it's some horrible thing that Trump has done. Yeah, so stop doing that and just focus on the policy you want to change. And right now, work on the Supreme Court nomination. Uh, I, I, we will try. I'm, I'm not at all sanguine. I think he will probably get put on the court, but we'll do what we can. If we work hard enough, we can stop. <sighs> From your lips to God's ears. Um, yes. All right, Professor, thank you so much for your time today. I've really appreciated it. Okay, Toby. Thanks a lot. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Political Philosophy Podcast. If you enjoy these sorts of conversations, please do like and subscribe. Next week, I'll be talking with Professor Colleen Murphy about transitional justice. So how you find justice in cases like South Africa, where... uh, morally evil regime is in the process of being replaced by a more democratic one. We'll also turn that conversation, and somewhat related to this discussion, consider the case for reparations in the American case. So please do stay tuned for that, as well as many more great conversations coming out every week. And once again, if you are enjoying the show, please do consider supporting. We suggest a donation of $2 an episode, So if you enjoyed the episode you just listened to as much as, say, a cup of coffee, then consider supporting it on that basis. That's really easy to do on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash politicalphilosophypodcast. All the links are on our website as well as the links to follow and share. politicalphilosophypodcast.com, politicalphilosophypodcast.com. So, thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll join us again next week.